0: You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems with your host, Northwestern University internist Dr. Lee Friedman. Lumbar spinal stenosis is a common problem in the elderly population. It is sometimes tricky to diagnose. How can we diagnose this more accurately and what are our options for treatment? With me is Dr. William Welch, Professor of and Chief of Neurosurgery at Pennsylvania Hospital at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Welch. Dr. Friedman, thank you for having me. Our population is aging, and I often have patients coming in with back pain, radiating down into the legs or pain when they walk. I often have trouble distinguishing radiculopathy. Is it spinal stenosis? How should we clinically approach this?
1: Well, it's an important distinction in a way and an unimportant distinction in other ways. Spinal stenosis, especially lumbar spinal stenosis, typically is, as you know, an arthritic narrowing of the spinal canal. It comes from a number of factors. Perhaps the uh, most significant factor is that the facet joints on the side of the spine, which allow motion across a disc space, just like the joints anywhere else in the uh, body may become arthritic and overgrown. As that happens, they can and will press on both the cauda equina of the lower lumbar canal, but also the exiting nerve roots. As they press on the exiting nerve roots, the patients can and frequently do get sciatica. So you can certainly have lumbar spinal stenosis with, that is to say, an anatomic narrowing of the spinal canal with two syndromes. You can have it with neurogenic claudication, that is to say, the patients can't walk any distances anymore, and you can certainly see it with sciatica and both.
0: So both presentations can indicate spinal stenosis. Exactly. On physical exam or on history, are there things that should point us to a neurogenic claudication versus a vasculogenic claudication?
1: What I'm told, and I can't say that I can absolutely confirm this, but the standard teaching is that with a vascular claudication, the uh, patient's walking distance is fairly fixed although that's not been my experience but with neurogenic claudication the uh, length can vary but with either what the patients do notice is that their walking distance is shorter than they would expect it to be. What I do for vascular if I even believe the patient has vascular claudication obviously I'll feel their pulses and I'll send them for Doppler studies. What I'll actually do during the course of the Doppler studies I've seen very rarely this be the case I'll have the technician do Doppler studies of the lower extremities to generate ankle brachial indices, and then make the patient walk until they're symptomatic. And frequently, that's a short walking distance. They can just walk up and down the hall a few times. And once they become symptomatic, I ask the technician to repeat that. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, you'll find somebody with a vasospastic type of vascular claudication, but that's pretty rare in my experience. More typically, the claudication, especially in today's age when people are smoking less and taking better care of their health. It's typically a neurogenic claudication. And the history I usually get is that the patients will be in their 60s, 70s, and 80s or beyond. They'll tell me 10 years ago, they could walk with their spouse for miles nonstop. Five years ago, they could only walk a half mile. And now when I see them, they can only walk a couple blocks. And it's frequently the spouse that's bringing them in to see the physician because in the case of the husbands, the wife can no longer golf. In the case of the the wives, the husbands can no longer go shopping with the wives. So it becomes an issue, a quality of life issue.
0: Well, I'm chuckling because I know those patients very well. <laughs> I think a vascular claudication is most commonly being in the calves or the thighs. Do you also sometimes see hip or back discomfort with
1: a neurogenic claudication? Absolutely, very, very commonly. The patients usually will have a tough time describing it to me but they'll say that their legs just don't want to do what they want them to do. So typically then they'll either sit or squat, or what many patients notice is that by simply flexing their lower back, by bending over, by doing a stretching exercise, they'll be better. What many patients notice is if they push a shopping cart, the proverbial shopping cart sign, if they push a shopping cart, they will put their lumbar spine into flexion That actually opens up the canal slightly by putting the posterior longitudinal ligament on stretch. The patients will fare better if they push a cart. So they actually prefer to push a cart in the grocery stores.
0: And then on exam, are there? I always think that there don't have to be any hard neurologic signs that can't really rule it in or out. Is
1: that the case? It's exactly the case. Frequently, since they're older patients, they'll have a very subtle neuropathy. If they indeed do have a sciatic component to their presentation, they may have some hyposthesia, some decreased sensation. They may have some muscular weakness or they even perhaps some very mild foot drops or weakness in the gastrocnemius and soleus muscles. But very frequently, especially in the healthier patients, they have no symptoms whatsoever.
0: And then in terms of imaging, you mentioned if you're thinking maybe vascular, we get the arterial dopplers or flow studies. Exactly.
1: If you can get them to do it with and without exercise.
0: Would you empirically treat or go right to an MRI to make the diagnosis? How should we approach them?
1: The major issue for the patients and for us as physicians, we like to, of course, be, quote, conservative, non-surgical, and take uh, non-surgical approaches at first. But except for physical therapy in a deconditioned patient, there aren't really good studies that show that non-surgical treatments afford the patients much relief in the long term. I like to get an MRI, but obviously patients come to me with the MRIs. Getting plain x-rays is useful too because it shows us if they have a spondylolisthesis or a broken bone or a compression fracture. MRI, again, supports that as well. But typically, uh, I like to see the patients after they've already had their MRI. Once that's done and you make the diagnosis of lumbar spinal stenosis, the question is, do you send the patient for epidural steroid injections? We frequently do, but the typical results that I see for many patients is they'll get a short period of relief and then their symptoms will come back. If the patients are quite deconditioned, I will send them for physical therapy. That maximizes their uh, physical conditioning and probably helps to shorten their uh, recovery from surgery. But to my knowledge, and I think there are a number of studies that support this, the only real long-term effective treatment is surgery, and surgery is usually effective in the patients.
0: And it sounds like we shouldn't even bother with nonsteroidal anti-inflammatories or oral prednisone. Those really are not very effective. You can try.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and we frequently uh-huh. do because they're uh-huh. low risk. And uh-huh. sometimes if the patient's marginal and they really don't want to consider surgery, we do these things. And it helps, especially the non anti-inflammatories, especially if they have a sciatic component or a lot of back pain. It, it may help, but it may help to tide the patient over for a time. Dr. Freeman, I wanted to point out just the radiographic diagnosis of lumbar spinal stenosis can be a little bit tricky in that we would believe it would make sense that the worse the narrowing of the spinal canal, that is to say the smaller the cross-sectional area of the spinal canal, the greater the degree of symptoms that the patient would have. But actually, there's a very poor correlation coefficient. It's only about 0.6 Pearson correlation coefficient between the cross-sectional area of the spinal canal and the patient's symptoms. So occasionally, we'll have a patient with very little narrowing, but we'll have the absolute classic neurogenic claudication. They'll have no evidence of vascular claudication, and they will benefit with surgical intervention. On the flip side, I'll see patients, I remember one patient in particular who had the worst stenosis i had ever seen in my life i'm sure that if we had done a myelogram none of the contrast material would have gotten through (laughs) and this man's major complaint he was having some bladder dysfunction it had been long-standing he had no limitation in his walking he had no strength loss he had no sensory loss and he basically wanted to know if you fix this is my bladder going to be better And I couldn't assure him of that. So he never had surgery.
0: Well, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm speaking with Dr. William Welch, the chief of neurosurgery at the University of Pennsylvania, about lumbar spinal stenosis. Dr. Welch, tell us then about surgery. What are the approaches that are available and how successful are they?
1: There are a number of approaches available in general terms the success as defined by a patient, them telling us that the surgery was successful, it's about 80 plus percent. Now, just before I even go into the surgeries, what I try to clear up with the patient is what are we going to call success? Typically, it's a patient who can't walk a distance. Frequently, they'll have a component of sciatica. Almost always will they have back pain. And if the back pain is not the absolute major component to their complaints. What I tell them and what I will recommend for surgery is a lumbar decompression. This can be done through a small or a couple inch skin incision. You can do it through endoscopic tubes, any one of a number of ways to do it. But what needs to be done is the ligamentum flavum that is compressing on the dorsal aspect of the fecal sac needs to be removed either partially or completely. And typically to do that we'll remove some or all of the lamina of the adjacent, the adjoining vertebral bodies. The biggest risk for that surgery is a fluid leak, and that only occurs in less than 10% of patients. Even if that does occur, we typically just sew it up, and it's no long-standing issue. The patients can go home typically the next day or the following day. I typically will do this under spinal anesthesia. Until recently, I always did it under general anesthesia. So it's you know, a relatively low risk very high-yield procedure to provide patients with an increase in walking and a reduction in their sciatica. Now, those patients will have a reduction in their back pain. Some patients will have a great reduction in their back pain. Others won't.
0: Not quite as reliable for the back pain component. The best we
1: can offer them is to combine that surgery, the decompression, with a fusion. And some of my orthopedic colleagues and some of my own neurosurgical colleagues will do that routinely. Any patient that they're doing a decompression on, they'll do a fusion on. The fusion involves the administration of a bone, obviously, typically iliac crest autograph bone, and frequently implants, titanium pedicle screw fixation implants. More recently, we have the available of devices such as Denisys which are implants that support the spine, but don't require bone harvesting, don't require a fusion. And instead of reducing the movement across the spine, do maintain at least some movement of the spine. And That's a product that I was involved in, in a multicenter randomized prospective trial. We did in about 400 or so patients.
0: And it came out doing just as well for symptoms and improvement in terms of flexibility?
1: Exactly. Compared to fusion, that's exactly right.
0: Well, this is very interesting. Lumbar spinal stenosis certainly is a very common problem, particularly in the aging population that we have. And I want to thank Dr. Welch, the Chief of Neurosurgery at the University of Pennsylvania Hospitals, for outlining for us the diagnostic and therapeutic approach. And at least for me, getting me excited about some of the procedural approaches because a lot of patients are very, very limited by this problem. So thank you very much, Dr. Welch.
1: Dr. Friedman, it's never too late to do a neurosurgical residency or an orthopedic (laughs) residency.
0: (laughs) I don't know that I have the fiber for that. I'll I'll leave that uh, to you. I'll I'll be a good referral source. (laughs) Thank you. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To learn more about this or any other show, please visit us at reachmd.com, where you can also register and sign up for access to our on-demand features. Thank you for listening.